Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Just start moving. In this episode, I'm joined by Jason Arduzzi, who Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune describes as a first-rate songwriter and band leader. KEXP says, You won't see more indie rock cred than on the CV of Jason Arduzzi. Hailing from Evanston, Illinois, Jason has recorded and toured with Bob Mould Band, Super Chunk, Verbo, and his current project, Split Single, have a new album, Amplificado, out June 25th on Inside Outside Records, which was recorded at Electrical Audio in Chicago with Mike Mills on bass and John Worcester on drums. Jason is also known for having the sexiest elbows in rock. Jason and I dig into his journey, starting his first band, Verboten, and playing shows when he was only 11. Verboten is credited with inspiring Dave Grohl of Nirvana, Probot, and Foo Fighters to start a band. Jason shares the process of writing for the musical version of Verboten, which was released shortly before the pandemic, and how the process differs from the way he approaches split single songs. Jason walks me through what it's like collaborating with Bob Mould of Husker Du and Sugar, Robert Pollard of Guided by Voices, Mike Mills of R.E.M. and The Baseball Project, and John Worcester of Super Chunk and The Mountain Goats, among others. Jason discusses some of the ways he's adapted to the pandemic, including the unexpected joys of doing lawn shows. We nerd out about Cheap Trick and Bob Mould. I really appreciate Jason's encyclopedic knowledge of Bob Mould solo shows in the 90s. And Jason shares some great stories of performing down, one of the Trick's greatest songs around the world. Jason will be on tour this summer with Bob Mould Band, as well as supporting Split Singles release of Amplificado, and he'll be touring in the fall opening for Bob Mould solo shows. I'm looking forward to seeing Jason in Iowa City in October. It was an honor having Jason join me on the podcast, especially during Pride Month, as his latest release, Nothing You Can Do to End This Love is a message of love and support to the LGBTQ community. Check out the links in the show description for more information on Split Single and the YouTube clips on Jason coming to grips with the pros and cons of having the sexiest elbows in rock. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Jason, thank you so much for joining me on the IO Idea podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. If you don't mind for our guests, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, my name is Jason Arduzzi. I'm a musician from Evanston, Illinois. Uh, fortunate to play bass in the Bob Mould Band and Super Chunk. And I have my own musical project called Split Single, which is basically a, a solo project with a band name. Yeah, uh, and the you have an upcoming album coming out with Split Single, and you had a a few folks jump in to help you out on the recording. But uh, do you mind talking just a little bit about the new record? Yeah, the new record is called Amplificado. It is the third Split Single full length record. It comes out June twenty fifth, twenty twenty one, and uh, it's eleven songs. Um, I called it Amplificado because I felt like. Um, 
myself and, and many of the people around me feel like their existence is amplified by living through the pandemic and for empathetic and kind hearts for living through five years of, of Trumpism. Um, uh, and I didn't, uh, amplified was just too simple a word. So I, I talked to my friend Alberto about the uh, proper version of amplified in Spanish and amplificado was the one that he said is correct. And I, I like the way that that sounded. So it's the third record. Um, as with all of the split single records so far, John Worcester plays drums on it. Uh, I've worked with John on a number of things. We first started playing together in 2006 with an artist named Robert Pollard from Guided by Voices. And um, uh, he ended up in the Bob Mould Band. And uh, sorry, I'm getting texts from the family. Um, and then uh, I ended up in Super Chunk. So we, we are really just so tired of each other. No. Um, <laughs> Uh, we we've done a lot of things together. So he's he plays drums on this record, and then um, Mike Mills from REM and the Baseball Project plays bass. I play guitar. There's a wonderful guitarist from Chicago named Dan Liu who takes a lot of the solos. And um, on one song, um, Allison Chesley, who is in Verbo with me, plays cello and piano. And uh, on two songs, the keyboardist from Wellcode, Mike Jorgensen, contributes. Thanks so much. I know, and you've you've been able to collaborate with uh, kind of a who's who of uh, kind of modern rock. Uh, do you mind just walking me through how does that collaboration start? Is it do you do you already have people in mind who you want to work with, or? Do you reach out to folks and say, hey, I'm working on a new record. Do you want to collaborate? I'm just kind of curious because they're your songs. How fully formed are they? And, and how do you get other folks to contribute? There's no rules to it. I've never asked somebody that I don't already know. Um, you know, the first record is Britt Daniel from Spoon on Bass. And I at that point, I had known Britt for about six or seven years. And second record, the bass is base duties are taken up by John Stewart from Wilco. And he, um, I had known, I think I met him in 99 or something. So a long, long time. Um, and with Mike Mills, I had, I had met him 15 years prior, but, um, you know, he, I, I, that was maybe the first time that I thought there's no way he's going to say yes. Um, I thought I had a chance with Britt and John, but fortunately, uh, Mike was available and, uh, and it's, it's an interesting project because, um, you know, I learned so much. I have learned and continue to learn so much from artists like Bob Mould and, and Mac and, um, and, and Robert Pollard and a number of people that I've played with. Um, and one thing that I've learned as we get older as musicians, certainly with the Bob Mould band and super chunk is that, um, practice is overrated. <laughs> and what I mean by practice is people getting into a room and playing the songs before a show or before a record. Um, for instance, I've made five Bob Mould records with John and Bob, and we've never practiced before we record. Um, and so you learn things like that and you go, oh, okay, well, Mike Mills, here are, here are the demos. Play whatever you want to play 
and then we'll set up in the studio and just start playing, you know, instead of spending two or three days in a rehearsal space, working through things. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's a, it's a much easier thing for someone to agree to if it's just three days of recording in Chicago. You know? Right. Right. Um, so <clears throat> Yeah, so it's, it's it's very rewarding for me as a musician. I I've learned so much from from all of the people that have played on my records. Um, you know, the second record, Nora O'Connor, who lives just six blocks away from me, sings on eight songs, and it, just uh, incredible. Not only her talent, but the the notes that she chose um, were nothing like what I would have heard, and so that's an incredible contribution to a record when someone can bring all of that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so split singles are really, it's, it's mostly fun. <laughs> um, and when it's not fun, it's just because it's a lot of work in that I don't have a label or a manager or a booking agent. So I, I, I try to do all of those things myself and things certainly fall through the cracks. Um, uh, but it's nice to have total control of it. And, um, and learn about, you know, how do you get your, you know, how do you put your record on Bandcamp and how do you release different singles at different times and how do you make a video? So it's been, um, I enjoy it quite a bit. And it's nice to have an outlet outside of the bands where I'm just sort of a uh, band guy, you know. Thank you. And uh, just kind of from a music nerd standpoint, were you nervous at all? Like, like as you, you play with, you know, Bob Mould, playing with Mike Mills, uh, is there any nervousness or are you already comfortable in your own skin that you're like, let's go? Because uh, for me, those are just icons. Uh, so it, to me, I, I think I'd have trouble getting a sentence out, let alone talking <laughs> about what we want to do in the studio. I'm, I'm not nervous, but that might be more because of them than me. You know, I mean, for instance, with Mike Mills, he's just very disarming. Um, he's very present and he's also completely willing to talk about REM, which I wouldn't blame him if he didn't want to do that. Um, there were a couple of times in the studio where John or I would ask him a question about something in REM's past and he was happy to a couple of times he'd even just pick up a guitar and say, well, I came up with this. And then Peter wrote this on top of this. And, you know, both John and I, you know, have goosebumps and yeah. are looking at each other like what? Um, but it does, it didn't translate to nervousness because he's, he's just such a pleasant. And I knew that asking him, I'd spent enough time with him um, that I knew that on a personal level, it would be very easy to spend time together. So. Thanks. And uh, how did how did the the start of getting connected with with Bob Mould uh, and becoming part of Bob Mould Band and doing those albums? But uh, how did you you become part of the Bob Mould Band? I was a huge fan, and uh, in the '90s, starting in maybe '91 or '92, I would go to Bob Mould sound checks. And bring him local press, you know, before the internet, an artist like Bob would do an interview and then never see or hear about that article. Um, so I would come with a stack of interviews that he had done and give them to him. And he appreciated that. And also, you know, keep my distance and not be weird or anything. And he just came to know me as like, you know, kind of this harmless 
little super fan that would show up every once in a while. And then a few years later, there's a um, uh, promoter in Chicago called Jam Productions, a guy named Nick Miller suggested that I think Bob had three sold out Metro shows acoustic and they were looking for an opening act. And Nick said, you know, there's this guy, Jason, who plays with a cellist named Allison. They call themselves Jason and Allison. Not the most creative name. Um, and Bob said, tell me about this. And Nick started to describe what we do. And Bob goes, oh, I know Jason. <laughs> you know, like I know that guy. He's at all the... He shows up at shows everywhere, East Coast, Midwest. Uh, so he was familiar with me. And then we we opened up those shows, ended up doing a tour with Bob. And then he produced our first, the first Verbo record on Sony in 97. And so just years and years of working together. And then fast forward to 2005 and Bob all of a sudden wants to start touring with a band again. And he asked me if I would play bass. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I lived in, uh, after graduate school, I lived in Minneapolis for 15 years. And I think one of the biggest reasons that Minneapolis was <laughs> on my radar was because of Husker Du as a kid. Mm -hmm. So you know, it was a huge Bob Mould fan. And uh, yeah, we would, you know, as much as we could around the Midwest, try to catch him, you know, in Chicago, or, uh, you know, he played, he played in Bloomington, Illinois, played in Iowa City a bunch. Uh, so that was always fun when I was an undergrad. Acoustic show at Bloomington in 93. Uh, that sounds right. Yes. I, I was there. Yeah. With the Osaka set list. I don't know if you remember that. I remember he was just back from J Japan and he just told us that he was using the, the Osaka set list and you know, 94 held that up. Then. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, one Bob story that uh, I just really appreciated was uh, I think this would have been 91 at Gabe's in Iowa city. Uh, you know, and it was solo acoustic and he came out and I don't, I had a bootleg of that one. Did you? Somebody recorded it. Yeah. Do, do I, they in, in college, I had a, I had a bootleg of it on cassette. I don't know if I still have it. By chance is the audio there when the show was getting started, somebody from the back yelled, uh, cause he, yeah. came out with, why do you stand up? Old stand man? up, stand up. Old man. Why don't you sit down, son? Yes. <laughs> I have he, that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Cause yeah. I was, I was there for that show. And when he said, yeah, why don't you sit down? Matter of fact, why don't you all sit down? We're going to be here for a while. And yeah. Yeah. I think it's the only time at Gabe's I've seen everybody sit down, Cause it's not a floor that one would want to sit right. down on. <laughs> and it's funny that they said, stand up old man. He was 30. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was, yeah, that was uh, such a fun, fun show. Uh, want to go back to just kind of a little bit about your journey and, and interest, because uh, your interest in, in rock started really, really young. And you, uh, for folks that don't know, I, and I don't want to give away too much, you know, because it's your story, right? But uh, you, you had one of your first bands before you were a teenager. Yeah. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I, my mom and stepdad gave me an electric guitar um, Christmas of 80, I believe. I was nine uh, or 81. And uh, I, it meant everything to me. That was, that was everything. My dad had taken me to see Cheap Trick and he took me to see The Kids Are All Right by The Who when that came out in 79. And so it, it just wasn't even it never crossed my mind that I could even own an electric guitar. That just wasn't even a possibility. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't like, Oh, I hope one day I just didn't even cross my mind. And they bought me one. It was an SG copy. So 
you know, almost identical, it was black, almost identical looking to what Townsend played at Woodstock. And I mean, I slept with the thing, you know, it wasn't just that I was, you know, playing and learning all the time on it. I, it, it was in my bed, you know, and, uh, you know, I just got very focused and, and, and determined and met some friends in Evanston, you know, not far from where I live right now. And we formed a band called Verboten and um, started playing out. We were actually playing in Chicago rock clubs. It's so weird. It's just so weird. So, yeah, because as I mean, talk about underage, right? I mean, sometimes we think about underage yeah. shows just being not able to drink, but like. Well, and it's funny, like one of the shows we played was at Cubby Bear, which is Kitty Corner from Wrigley Field, which if you look at it now, you're like, that's that's a sports bar. You know, there's like 10,000 televisions and, you know, I think they have a lot of cover bands play there, you know, but, but back then it was a quarter the size, maybe even smaller. And it had some punk rock shows and it was sketchy. The whole neighborhood was sketchy. So it's unrecognizable really, but it's still that corner of bar. Um, and, um, you know, I think the only reason we had that show is our singer Tracy was just so personable and would make so many friendships. And so the the bands that we were opening for just said, "Oh, Verboten's going to be on this bill," and then we showed up. And I don't, I don't know how we were able to do this. You know, um, I, maybe it was like a Sunday night or something. But like, yeah, why wouldn't? The law cross anybody's mind with this eleven-year-old guitarist. 12-year-old drummer, 13-year-old bassist, and 15-year-old singer. None of them close to being of age, you know? Maybe it was an all-ages show because, I don't know, maybe it was early. Listen, this is a long time ago. This is 39 years ago. Um, But somehow that happened, and somehow my dad had the idea of bringing a video camera and capturing it. And um, so I can can say, no, it really did happen. (laughs) There it is. No, that's, that's great. And, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier kind of pre-internet, right? And so like, even if like the name Verboten's on there, it would be hard for people to do any research, right? To say, like, <laughs> I think no one was talking about Verboten, you know, uh, seven years ago. I mean, I had, I, I, in my twenties, I got signed to, to Epic Records. And I mean, I think I talked about it in one interview or something. It just wasn't, it was kind of an interesting thing that had no significance to what I was doing. And then, you know, you fast forward to 2014 and Dave Grohl makes the HBO Sonic Highways thing, interviews Tracy and I, and includes footage from that Cubby Bear thing. And it's like now verboten gets mentioned in every interview I do. And, and uh, how interesting, fun or strange is it to also have a musical based on that band? Well, it's great. It was an incredible project. I mean, I, uh, it was terrifying because I didn't, it, it wasn't my idea, number one. And when it was proposed to me, I was, uh, um, I thought it was absurd and uh, I was intimidated by it. I'd never written music to a musical. And then it's very personal because it's my childhood and my friend's childhood, you know, which I'm protective of both. And, right. um, it was a long process with a lot of ups and downs. There was a number of times that I thought it was not going to happen. 
Um, but the the playwright Brett Nevue and the director Nathan Allen uh, persevered and what? Um, sorry, we're having our garage door repaired. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, thankfully, they were determined to make it happen and kept pushing and 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 got it through. So it was five, at least five years of work and. Um, we were so fortunate not only to have it open before the pandemic, right before the pandemic, but we, we, we got great reviews and um, we, we recently just got nominated for um, a national award for new, new musical for 2020. So it's, uh, it's something that I'm very excited about. Um, oh, it's credit card. Sorry to interrupt the podcast. <laughs> Um, so uh, was I saying, so, yeah, so, so, um, you know, there were so many, I mean, I was intimidated as a writer and then, you know, the, the concept was to have 11 actors play all the instruments, which is incredibly ambitious, um, especially with the style of music. So my, once Brett wrote the story, I thought, okay, the the kids will sing punk rock songs and the parents will sing music that's inspired by their generation. So, you know, the Zach's dad character sings a classic rock arena rock style song. Um, there's a ballad. There's, you know, I, I tried to go to, to different styles, but it was very important to me that there were six or seven full on punk rock songs because I hadn't seen that done. You know, there was like, Green Day had a musical and, and, you know, uh, Billy writes great songs, but it's, it's very pop, you know? Right. Right. Um, I, I wanted like, you know, 200 BPM, you know, some, so when you're asking actors to play that, it's, it's not easy. And I have to give the house theater credit for just casting super talented people who are willing to learn, you know, because it's one thing to find a good actor. It's another thing to find a good actor who can play music. And it's a whole other thing to find a good actor who can play music, who can play punk rock. And um, what we ended up doing, and this is, this was born of the actors, like out of their request, the summer before we opened, we opened in January, the summer before we started doing rehearsals with music rehearsals not not acting or, or blocking or staging or anything but just the music and i would go in there with the musical director and show them voicings and show them you know there's just simple things like if somebody knows how to play a g chord that's fine but in punk rock you don't play the third and i'm getting a little bit inside baseball here but yeah, no, you know there's not a lot of thirds in punk rock so it's like roots and fifths and just different voicings to make it easier to play and also sound more like a punk rock band. Um, that's, and the, the cast had this great idea of doing a club show before we did the, the play. So in December of 2019, we did a show over at Space here in Evanston. And, um, you know, I had no idea what that show would be. I mean, you're, I, I called the promoter, Jake, and I said, Can, you know, I think we should do this on a Monday night. I think it should be early, like 7 p.m. 
$10 tickets, you know, like how do you, how do you sell um, artists that you've never heard of playing music that no one's heard of from a play that hasn't even opened, you know? And it was packed. It was, it was crazy. It was packed. And the, the, the actors did an incredible job. And so that was an early indicator that, okay, there's a lot of talent here and there's a lot of interest, which is a good combination. <laughs> so once we opened, it started to get great reviews and then it started to sell out. And then, you know, I'm learning about theater as we go. And it turns out that once that happens, the, the musical gets extended, which means they add dates. And so it got extended for three weeks and, um, you know, just an amazing experience is one of the best musical experiences of my life. Um, uh, I'm so thankful to everybody involved because it still resonates with me. Just an amazing experience. That That's awesome. Thank you for, for sharing that. Uh, want to uh, just uh, jump back a little bit to, to uh, Jason and Allison and for me, it's a cheap trick connection, but that's how I was introduced to your music. And uh, another friend of mine from Rockford, uh, who's a huge cheap trick fan. And I remember we were, we were driving back uh, from Iowa city to the Chicago area. And we were listening to uh sexualized cheap trick, the, the box set from, yeah. from year, years ago. And uh, I got really excited because he said, I, I just saw this band uh, in Chicago called Jason and Allison, and uh, they did a cover of Downed. And uh, we always get excited when we go to shows and there's a cheap trick cover. One, but when it's deeper in the catalog, we get right. <laughs> we get yeah. super nerdy about it. So then I'm like, okay, uh, for me, that was, I got I to gotta listen to that. And it was, you know, with Allison and the cello, it, it was, it's, it's, it was gorgeous. So I just want to like kind of nerdily just thank you for the music that you've been doing for the years. But my, my entree was through, oh, uh, it, it, it was, it was a backdoor to cheap trick, but, man. uh, but Jason and Allison. Thank you. Allison is amazing. Yeah. yeah. We used to do, uh, I don't know if we did another one. Does that box set have, uh, I did go, go girls on it. I believe it does. Yeah. I love that, that song. Long, that early, it was the long box, red, white, and blue, and, uh, and yeah, and Tom doing "Waiting for the Man," right, which yeah. they still do often. Yeah, yeah. Um, funny cheap trick story. Uh, in I guess it was Fourth of July or Third of July in 2012. Um, Bob Mulban was headlining one of the stages at Summer Summer. Summerfest is that the Milwaukee yep. one? Yeah, yep. And um we thought about the connection to Milwaukee and how, you know, that was such a big cheap trick city for, you know, they were huge in Milwaukee too. And I think in practice or something or we had or maybe at Metro we had played downed before. And uh Bob <laughs> we you know, we came off stage and for the encore he's like, "Do you want to see you want to sing cheap trick to me?" And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And uh, we came out, we did down. And it just so happened that the guy that was doing sound for us that day, this guy named Paul Massaro, used to work for Cheap Trick. So when he heard the intro guitar, 
he knew which vocal effect to put on my, you know, to hold that note out yeah, uh, to make it sound like cheap trick. And then I can hear that. And I'm like, Oh my God, the sound guy gets it. Um, and it just killed, you know, and I mean, not, not because I, not because of me, you know, but because people love that song and, and that was the right town to do it and the right time to do it. I think because of that, you know, it's like, it sounds like a hit song, you know, but it's, not one of their more popular songs, but all right. the, all the cheap trick fans, that's one of their favorites. And it just rocks. It's just a, an incredible verse and chorus and, and bridge. Um, fast forward, to, we went to London not long after that and played Copper Blue uh, and Silver Age at, at um, Shepherd's, Shepherd's Bush Empire, you know, nice big theater, sold out, Bob's return to the rock. And um, again, we walk off stage and Bob's like, you want to sing Cheap Trick? And I was like, yes, I do. <laughs> we get out there and do downed nothing. <laughs> they don't know Cheap Trick in London. You know, I mean, they know them, but like, that's a deep cut. And it was like, we just looked at each other like, whoa, okay. We went back to Bob's heads. You know, <laughs> like we laughed about it afterwards. We're like, oh, that's right. They're just not as popular in London. And uh here we were, we're like, yeah, we're going to roll this out. This always kills, you know, and it's like, oh, not in every market. Yeah. Yeah. You know? would it, uh, may, maybe if it was Japan, right? Japan, it would have killed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and many, many other cities. That's no diss on Cheap Trick. But every band has that, you know, like I played uh, Barcelona with, with Super Chunk and there are 8,000 people there. You're just like, wow, they're fucking huge in Spain. You know, yeah. like it's just... It's a spinal tap joke, but it's the real thing. We're like, right. I talked to Bob last week and cause we just, you know, uh, put tickets on sale for the, for the fall tour. And he put it perfectly. He's like, tickets are strong exactly where you think they would be. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yep. I know what cities you're talking about. Well, I know personally, super excited to uh, see you in October in Iowa city. Uh, so that was a uh, rescheduled. Oh, is that uh, the Engelbert? Uh, yeah, Eng Engler. Yep. Yep. Engler. Great. Yep. Yeah. It was going to be at the mill. I, oh, did you, did you ever play the mill by chance? Uh, unfortunately the, the mill was a casualty of pandemic, but uh, mm. super fun room. Uh, I don't think it, so. Yeah. So they did, had to move. Did it have a different name? Was it always the mill? Always the mill and small, small space, uh, like a long, there was a bar. place called the union Played at the yeah. union. Uh, obviously Gabe's Doug Roberson. Um, oh yeah. Iowa city. Well, Engler, the Bob Mull band played the Engler. That was probably 2013. Yeah. I was there for that. 14. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't think I played the mill. All right. Well, <laughs> unfortunately it won't, but uh, I know a good show. Do you, uh, just, I'm making some Chicago connections here, but, uh, I don't know. Have you worked with Ken Goodman by chance at, uh, from Pravda and New Duncan mm -hmm. Imperials? I know him. I haven't worked with them. Okay. Yeah. Just, yeah. I know. Uh, Cause they, they'd play, they'd play the mill or Gabe's a lot. So it's kind of oh, similar yeah. vibe just a, a, that the musicians and comedians tend to have a, a good time when they're, they're at that, that venue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also a Chicago connection. I, uh, as I'm, I'm reaching here, but I know you do some, some house painting or have done some house painting. Um, uh, my dad was a firefighter and had his own painting and wallpapering business on the side. Oh, cool. so that was nice. some of my early work. Uh, 
And my dad was always very generous with the, the boom box back in the day that we'd rotate back and forth between his music and, and my music. Now it's ear pods for everybody. Right. Right. Which is, uh, which is a good thing because I remember one time we had a, a guy that loved, you know, really kind of brutal death metal. And it, yeah. like, whenever it was his turn to have the boom box, everybody was like, Oh no, not this again. So by chance, do you know Weasel Walter? He used to live no. in Chicago for a while. Uh, no, but he was part of the like the the no wave uh, uh, music scene. And Flying Lutenbachers was a that was one of his bands. But his uh, his dad uh, actually taught my dad how to paint and wallpaper. So that oh, okay connection there. Um, Want to talk to you a little bit about your creative process? A little bit. I I read somewhere. Uh, I think an old Tribune article. But you um. You you do melody first and then lyrics follow. Uh, but I'm always I, one. Is that true? Two is uh, I'm just from a creative standpoint. Do you ever feel stuck? And what are your techniques uh, to get unstuck or to to help the creativity flow? Uh, I I do write chords and melody first. So I've got a guitar and I'm playing chords and I sing something on top of it. But we call them dummy lyrics where you're just you know. Um, making up, it's not even words. It's just, um, and the reason for that is the way that I, my favorite music, um, could have great lyrics or it might not, but the music, but the music always connects with me. Um, which is probably one of the reasons why I'm not a huge Bob Dylan fan. And what I mean by that is no disrespect to the legend that he is, but I never put on a Bob Dylan record. Um, and I think some people hear music and they want to hear, you know, seven verses of engaging lyrics or what they perceive as engaging lyrics. And that's just not how I listen to music. Like what, what the hell is downed about? I want to live on a mountain. Okay. You know, it just doesn't matter to me. It just sounds awesome. You know? Right. I don't want the lyrics to be dumb, you know, I want them to be good, but they just don't have to be for me. Um, if they're bad, I probably won't listen to it. But um, so that's, that's how, that's the main premise of how I work. The musical was a little bit different in that sometimes I had very clear, you know, in some ways the musical was easier for me because when I sit down to write a split single song, Sometimes I'm like, what the hell am I going to write about? But when you're writing a musical and it's this character and this character, they just had a scene and this is what it said. You kind of know where you're going with it. Um, so that's the process. I think with getting stuck, the best um, way for me to get out of that is to just write and not worry about if it's bad. Um, certainly with lyrics, just write them down. And then often the next day I'll come back to it and go, that's really bad. Or I'll go, I think I can make it better and make changes to it. So it's just sort of like, you know, the who sung guitar and pen from who are you just put the, put the pen in your hand and just start moving. It might not be in the right direction. I just read something recently on Twitter. I don't know who, you know, with Twitter, you can follow somebody and then they retweet somebody else and you have no idea who said it, but I think it was, a, a guy who writes um, TV shows and he said what he does, the hardest thing for him is to get started. So what he'll do is he'll write 
intentionally the dumbest possible thing. You know, he's got a story and the characters and they say the dumbest lines, right? There's nothing in, uh, um, engaging or, or, or um, deep about it at all. And then the next day he starts fixing that script. And that's, an, that's kind of the same thing, you know, where like, don't worry about how good it is. Just get it on paper and then work from there. And sometimes you discard it. There's a song on the new split single record uh, on Amplificado called Mangled Tusk. And the song, because I don't write lyrics, sometimes I have, because I don't write lyrics first, sometimes I just have music and melody. And for that song, that was the case, even when we recorded it with Mike Mills and John Worcester. And what I called it was Jangle Tusk. And the reason is that it was jangly guitar and the drum beat on the demo kind of sounded like Fleetwood Mac right. Tusk. Right. Yep. So I just called it Jangle Tusk just so I knew what I was talking about, what song it was. And when it got time to record my vocals, which is at the very end of the process of making a record or recording a record, the engineer I was working with kept saying, when are we going to get the Jangle Tusk? Because he saw the list of songs. And I was like, well, I don't have lyrics for that yet, so I'm not sure. And he's like, okay. And then the next day he's like, when are we going to get the Jangle Tusk? And I was like, you keep asking about that song that you've never heard. Why do you keep asking about this? He's like, I love the title, Jangle Tusk. And I was like, okay, well, maybe I can come up with lyrics based on those words. I could not. I, I just couldn't do it. So then I started moving words around what sounds like that. Well, Mangle sounds like Jangle. And from there, I was like, oh. I recently had this kind of, you know, intense um, appointment with my dentist who was like, you have to wear a night guard. <laughs> and um, and I, when I say intense, I mean like it was the end of the line. It was like, we've made you night guards a couple of times. You've never worn them. Now we're, you know, code red. You need to like start wearing this, which is like kind of a, you know, like, okay, I'm not young anymore. You know, it's like one of those reminders that like, okay, I'm 50. Um, and the funny thing is, is that the tennis said, I think we made you one. And I was like, yeah, I think that was 12 years ago and I never wore it. And I, I said, but I think I have it at home. And she said, well, go home and see if maybe it still fits and we don't have to make you another one. I went home. There were two of them that they had made <laughs> eight years ago and four years ago. And I never wore them. They both fit, didn't have to make a new one. And now I wear it every night, but there were. I was able to find a story in that as funny as it is, you know, it's like a song about a night guard. Yeah. Okay. But you know, the first, the first lyric is uh, watching colors in a pitch black room, more enamel chips away. Right. So there I'm dreaming and I'm chewing and um, I was able to find, I think pretty good lyrics out of this thing. And I don't think most people would listen to it and go, Oh, that's just, that's a song about wearing a night guard. Um, but anyways, I, I'm hoping that as time goes on, it's recognized as one of the top five songs about wearing a night guard. I, I think it could. I, I think you got a shot. Think it's got a shot. You yeah. haven't heard it, and you still think it has a shot. Right, right. I'm, I, I'm already the the story, the title. I'm already in, and uh, and know. then there and then there are times where the lyrics just come out immediately, like nothing you can do to end this love. I wrote the chorus, which was she loves her, he loves him. There's nothing you can do to end this love which I liked that it doesn't rhyme, yeah. which is another thing that I tried doing on this record. There are songs where the 
one of the last songs I wrote is a song called Worry, which is a very pandemic um, focused song. Uh, and I was writing the verses. And I was like, these don't, these don't rhyme. And that gives it sort of unsettled. It doesn't resolve itself. And I was like, that's exactly what this is about. So we're going to keep it that way. So there were moments like that were a little bit less conventional pop lyric songwriting. Thank you. Uh, you know, just thinking about the pandemic, I know some some interesting things that musicians were were doing to, uh, I don't know, maybe not go nuts, right? And uh, I think one of the, one of the things I appreciated that you were doing were uh, lawn shows, uh, mm-hmm. and I was just kind of curious how how was that experience for you? And and post pandemic, do you think you might still do lawn shows, or was that I have only? Yeah. Okay. No, I have, I've been doing. I'm doing a East Coast lawn show tour. Um, in July, we're doing Philadelphia. We're doing, it's a solo. <laughs> it's me, uh, Philadelphia, Richmond, Baltimore, DC, and New York. Um, yeah, what happened was, you know, you mentioned the mill closing. All, every rock club was terrified and, and as musicians and fans, we were all terrified for them. And it just so happened that space this venue not far from me in Evanston, Jake Samuels is the is the the um, promoter, and he he called me in April, which is really early in the pandemic. He said we have this idea of doing lawn shows where it's we're going to call it space to go, where we bring the carpet from the stage, we bring tables and chairs from space, and we bring our pizza. And it's like we're bringing the club to people in a safe way outdoors in their yard. And I, I said, you know what, this I think that's a great idea. And they wanted to sort of use me as a guinea pig for it. So they said, May 9th, it's a Sunday. How many 30-minute shows could you do in Evanston? And I was like, five? And they said, you can sing your voice will hold up for five, 30 minutes, two and a half hours of singing. I was like, I don't know. I have nothing else on my calendar. Like, can we just try it? It went great. I ended up doing 53 lawn shows. Um, and then, and a few solo shows. So I think I did 57 solo shows. Um, yeah. I mean, I, it saved me emotionally. It saved me financially and it helped one of my favorite rock clubs in the world. So it was, um, and now what I'm seeing now that people have a lot more options, there's less lawn shows, but some people want to still do them because they had so much fun with it. It's, it's a really, you know, there are certain people that have like a community around them that love music. What's better than just sitting in the backyard, you know, having some food on the grill and, and having some drinks and sitting there in a cozy chair, you know, while an artist plays for, for an hour. So I really, I like the storytelling. I like trying out different songs and yeah, I mean, I, I love doing those shows. It's, it's, I had already been doing a lot of living room shows. So this is sort of an extension of that. Right. Um, And then there were really beautiful things that happened. Like there was a couple that hired me to play their, their wedding anniversary. That would not have happened without the pandemic. You know what I mean? Like they, they, they hired me because they didn't have another option. I mean, they could have hired another musician, but you know what I mean? Like that was, um, and so they, they said, can you play this, this velvet underground song that, that we 
played at our wedding. I said, yeah, I'll learn it. So I learned it. It was just them and another couple at this yard show. I'm playing the Velvet Underground song and they get up and they start dancing together. It's beautiful. Halfway through the song, their four-year-old joined them dancing. It was a beautiful thing. So I, I really do enjoy those shows. Yeah, that that's great. I have to imagine too, as a parent, uh, it's probably nice that you can, after the show's over, you're able to get back in your own own bed, right? Rather than out of the my next kids city. don't sleep in the same bed as me. But <laughs> uh, um, is that what you meant? Yeah. Uh, you mean no touring? Yeah, yeah. Just being able to get back home. <laughs> oh, sorry. You mean no. Touring? Sorry. Yeah, sorry, we're we're freezing yeah. up a little bit. Well, not. Oh. Oh. All right, I think we're back. Even better than that is the uh, early start time. Even even better than the uh, than the, the, it's the early start time. I'm doing um, a couple of shows. I don't know when this is going to air, but on June 5th, I'm playing at G Man, which is the it's attached to Metro. It's the same ownership. Right. And fortunately, the seven o'clock show sold out, and they said. You know, do you want to play the next night or do you want to play the night before? And I said, can I just do a matinee that same day? That way I load in once. So I'm doing a four o'clock show on June 5th. I love it. I wish every rock show is at four o'clock. That is, that's one of the things that as I've gotten older, it seems to be the hardest part about shows is how late they start. Right. When, well, when we I were think, young, it wasn't a problem, but well, it was a problem for me. Yeah. I, I hated it. When I was in my twenties and you know, I'd have like a local band that could draw well. So if if we were headlining, we were going on at one o'clock in the morning. And that was back when there were smoking in bars. So you like you had you had this awful smell and you're exhausted and you just watched two or three bands and now it's time to get up. I mean, it was like and then you go to New York and the headliner goes on at nine o'clock. And it's like, what are we doing wrong here in Chicago? <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm, I'm all about earlier shows. I know that it was, you know, it was about selling alcohol, but I think more tickets could be sold if the shows are earlier. Yeah. Even for a young crowd. I mean, for a young, like if I was 25 years old and one of my favorite bands was playing at seven o'clock, I would think, great. This awesome show with my friends afterwards. You know, stay out doesn't have to be at the club. Yeah. Uh, Hello. Uh, and sorry, we were freezing up again. I apologize. Ah, um, no problem. So, uh, and I I know that uh, you know there there's so much to you. So might not want to talk about this, but you you you've also been known to have the sexiest elbows. Uh, mm -hmm. in rock and roll. Uh, yeah. First time I seen it, I noticed that before his face. And I always say the face, the first thing you see, I don't see that first, I see his elbow, yeah? I had immediate respect. They're like the perfect object, but on someone's arm. These people don't understand what it's like to walk into a room and have everybody look down there. My eyes are up here. What what is it like to age and still try to maintain that? You know, I don't spend a lot of time on it because uh, there's just so much focus on them. You know, I'm sure you've seen the the three documentaries that are online. Um, so I try not to spend a lot of time 
with it. It the only way that it affects the performances these days is, you know, the ticket price. If it's you know like a lower ticket price, I've got a long sleeve shirt on. Higher ticket price, it's going to be a short sleeve shirt. Um, but I'm not just like I'm not really intense about musical gear. I don't I don't spend a lot of time thinking about oils or ointments or any kind of treatment for the for the elbow. So uh, when you're when you're doing the the lawn shows. Uh... Was that was that part of the the pricing model yeah. too? Was that something exactly. people would have to select? Exactly, and everybody knew it. They knew it, even if they didn't say it. Yeah, those and those those videos were great. How did you come up with the idea to do those to uh, and 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 get the the ensemble that you did for those? I um, I've got about five minutes, Matt. Okay, sorry, I got no, speaking that's... of speaking of the kids. Yep, um, they've got these shorter hybrid days. Yeah, yeah. Um, in uh, let's see, in 2012, I met um, Fred Armisen. He was doing a Portlandia tour, and he and Carrie came to the hideout here in Chicago to promote the you know the new season. And it just so happened that their tour manager is a friend of mine, somebody I've worked with, and his name is Jeff. But Jeff introduced me to Fred and it was kind of funny. It was the end of the night and I'm, I'm at, have you been to the hideout in Chicago? Yeah. So yeah. I love it. I'm near the, yeah, I'm near the doors yep. to the, to the main room. Jeff is on stage and Fred is in the middle of the room. So the three of us are like pretty spaced out at the end of the night. No one's talking. And from across says to me, so when you go back out onto the end date, that was it. He's a super fan. Um, he's like, you have to tell me when you're playing, you know, in either Portland or, you know, wherever he was going to be. Gave me his number, gave me his email. And uh, sure enough, I, we were able to get him out to a show. And um, again, we just started kind of hanging out or staying in touch. And um, I think two years later, my wife and I were celebrating a wedding anniversary and we were going to New York to see my friend, Michael Cerverus perform in the, uh, on Broadway as part of our, you know, like celebrate, yeah. just go to New York for a weekend. And, um, I reached out to Fred and I was like, you know, my wife and I are going to be in town. If you have time for coffee or something, no worries. I know you've got your, um, you're in season with Saturday Night live and the schedule is insane. And he's like, do you guys want to come to Saturday Night live? I was like, what? <laughs> uh, I couldn't believe he, he, and he did, he got us in and took us to the after party. I mean, it was like memories that will last a very long time. Um, and anyways, that episode that we were in the audience for was where um, he debuted uh, Ian Rubbish, the punk rock um, musician who loves the queen. Right. <laughs> so and then just a couple months later, I ran into him at a benefit here in Chicago um, that they do out of Second City. Um, this woman named Heather Winna does this uh, Secret Santa. It's great. They, they get all these comedians together and do a 24-hour show and raise all this money and then give needy kids computers and beds and clothes. And it's a, it's a wonderful cause. So Fred was in town for that. And he came up to me. He's like, your Instagram is so funny. And I, I was like, I had no idea that he was looking at my Instagram and I have so much respect for his sense of humor that, you know, I almost couldn't absorb what he was saying. And then of course, after 
you know, the next morning I'm like looking on my Instagram, like, what did he think was funny? <laughs> like, what's, what are the last, what are the last three things I posted that, you know, would garner, you know, such a comment. And one of them was this old press photo, a Jason and Allison photo, actually, where I was wearing short sleeve, a short sleeve shirt and I'm leaning in as if I'm, you know, highlighting, of the course elbow. I'm not. Yeah. And I just made up the story about how, my manager thought I had the sexiest elbows in rock and, and I had the first split single record coming out. So I was like, what, what kind of promotional video could I make? That's not like what other people are doing. And uh, so I put together this premise and then reached out to friends if they wanted to, you know, say 30 seconds about my elbows. And I reached out to Fred. I was like, would Ian Rubbish like to say anything about it? And he's like, yeah, I'll do it. I just couldn't believe it. Um, the funny thing is, beyond that is that he, I think he did four minutes straight. You know, they just turned the camera on and he, right. Ian Rubbish just talked for four minutes. Well, the, our video is three minutes, you know, and in the first edit, it was mostly Fred, you know, because it's so funny. And I sent it to a friend of mine who's a comedy writer who's not in it because I knew he would have a fresh look at it he's like you're leaning on fred too much he's like he's a genius it's hilarious but you you have a good story you should just expand on what you have and just let his moments be this special you know little icing on it and he, he was right i think we did 15 or 16 edits of that thing but i'm i'm very proud of yeah. it i mean that's something that like uh i couldn't believe it all fell together i mean that's a lot of people in one three minute video. And it's some of it's funny, like Margaret show I had done some work with and she was in LA and I'm in Chicago and I'm like, can you, can you take, here's, I sent her a picture of my arm. I was like, can you find somebody whose arm kind of looks like mine and just do nasty things so that, you know, kiss it and suck on it. And she's like, yeah, oh hell yeah, I'll do that. And the funny thing is the arm she found doesn't look anything like mine, but you just, you just roll with it, you know, but it so was, that, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. It's great. I loved, loved the series. And, and Jason, I want to thank you so much uh, for your time today and wishing you all the best as you get back out on the road and, and the release thank of you, the new Matt. record. So yeah, thank uh, you. And look forward and, to and for, you. And thanks for, thanks for not only, thanks for not only hosting a podcast, but being a podcast participant, because you were sending questions to the Dave Hill podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dave, Dave was a guest on the Iowa idea podcast and uh, lived to tell about it. Dave, yeah. Dave also was great in your uh, sexy elbows. Uh, yeah. Too. Yeah. I love that character that he does. <laughs> School and motherfuckers at guitar center. <laughs> Yeah, and I think his Guitar Center bit on his last record is one of the funniest yeah. uh, pieces of comedy I've heard in a long time. Yeah, it's great. It's, he's, he's absolutely hilarious. Hey, Dave. What's up? Where's your shirt off? Just school motherfuckers over at Guitar Center again. The usual. Listen, cheer up, man. Who cares if you didn't pass the audition? I'd probably be in Judas Priest or... Dawkin or like 900 other bands by now with those cock pieces new real talent. Cheap Trick sucks anyways. What? Listen, I'm just trying to make you feel better. Cheap Trick is amazing. My point is, maybe you should go back to Split Single, pal. I mean, you've schooled motherfuckers with Split Single before. I bet a lot of times. Every time, you know. 
Not really. Well, you've definitely schooled at least one motherfucker, I think. I do love split single, though. Yeah. It's my songs. That's right. I don't have to audition. No. You're right, Dave. Such a fun band for you to be in. I'm gonna do it. Get Thank out you. There. Thank you. Bring, bring some of that oh. low-grade rock to the people. Because they... You need... No.